Welcome to the DFD Podcast, where we discuss all things dairy farming. This week's episode is brought to you by Suregain and Trow Nutrition and their dealer partners. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the uh, DFD Podcast. I'm excited to have our uh, guest on here today. Uh, Dr. Matt Walker, who is a partner at Oxford Bovine Vet Service, and along with his wife and four daughters, own and operate Dairy Doc Holsteins. Uh, whereabouts are you guys, Matt? You guys are just outside Burford, aren't you? Yeah, we're just, uh, oh, five minutes south of Woodstock here, just right off the 401, 403. Uh, we're uh, just south of Woodstock. So why don't you uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, where you come from? Because I know you grew up on a farm in uh, New Brunswick and moved to Ontario uh, a, a number of years back. And uh, and maybe you kind of explain some of your, uh, your education and where you're at today. Sure, Keith. Um, so I grew up in uh, Sussex, New Brunswick, and uh, on a dairy farm there where my parents, they milked about 100 cows growing up. Um, which today my brother has taken that dairy over and he's, uh, and he's doubled the herd size there. And we worked a little bit with our uh, cousins right across the road. There's, there's not, there's more valleys on the East coast and there's big flat parcels of land up here in Ontario. So uh, the two farms basically uh, farm this valley in Sussex, uh, in Sussex there. And they milk about, you know, 250, 300 cows. And we work, uh, work together growing up. Um, I went to school in PEI. That's where I did the vets. My uh, There's four vet schools in Canada and the one for the uh, Atlantic provinces in, is in Charlottetown. And there are roughly 60 students a year graduate from there. I did my undergrad at uh, Nova Scotia Agricultural College just outside of uh, Truro, Truro, Nova Scotia. So that's where I did my first four years. So, And then I moved to um, Ontario in 2006. And that's when I uh, had the opportunity to join Oxford Bovine. And uh, I've been there ever since. So can you maybe explain what you're doing with uh, at Oxford Bovine? Because I know, I think, if I remember correctly, when I was talking to you last year, one of the biggest practitioners in uh, Canada, uh, as far as it goes for her number, cow numbers, sorry. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, at Oxford Vets, we, uh, I think there's seven vets. We have an eighth vet hired starting this year so we're a seven eight man practice you know we service a little over forty thousand cows um so in terms of cows per veterinarian you know we're uh you know we're right up in there in the you know six six seven thousand cows per vet um so that's what that's would be probably a little more than twice the average uh average veterinarian in canada and we tend to service a lot of the larger um dairies here in southwestern ontario so we're uh we're very privileged that way yeah and then maybe kind of if you could talk about uh about your farm i know uh, you're pretty excited about that all the time yes um well this is my wife's family farm she uh she grew up here so uh her parents had uh, made the decision five years ago seven years ago now i guess that they were going to sell the uh sell the 60 acres and we uh so we were talking about it and we had the opportunity to purchase this and um so my wife and i thought that this was a unique opportunity and and uh, so we bought the 60 acres of land here and we got the uh, new entrant quota 35 kgs and then we uh 
We just hit the jackpot right on that quota because we got all those increases right after that. So today we're currently sitting at uh, in the mid 70s for uh, for uh, for quota holdings. So we were lucky to double in the last uh, seven years. Um, yeah. So my wife, I have to give her a lot of the credit. She uh, she does the day to day in the mornings and the on, on the dairy and and uh, the herd health aspects of the farm and the breedings and uh, I look after most of that. So it's a uh, it's a good good teamwork that uh, that we have here together. Yeah, that's good. And I know the uh, the whole uh, reason that we or I asked you to come on the podcast is to talk about profitability. And I know it's a very broad subject and there's a lot of uh there's a lot of nuance to it i guess so i guess my first question for you matt is uh what in your opinion what is uh profitability and how do you kind of measure that well simplest terms <clears throat> i think profitability was what's left over at the end of the year so i think the you know when i sit down and look at my own farm it's whether you want to go cents per liter or whether you want to look at you know revenue per kg of butterfat. I guess what I look at is just expense ratio at the end of the year. Um, and a lot of banks look at that, whether it's 50% and what, what do I mean by expense ratio? You know, how much does it cost to produce that kg of butterfat or liter of milk or at the end of the year, you're, after you add up your feed costs and your labor costs and your replacement heifer costs and you know, all the other little minute things that go into that number, what's left over to pay the bank? What's my borrowing capacity left over? So for me, that's a, a really important number. Um, and then within that, you know, you really dive into the feed costs, which, you know, I've discussed this with Keith and a lot of other nutritionists before. Your return over feed is probably, a, you know, a heavy hitter in that category. Can you uh, maybe explain, because I think... Uh... I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are buying a TMR, uh, like a, uh, a TMR from a neighbor, correct? Yes. So how we do our dairy is we rent out our land at the going rate. And, um, you know, in Southwestern Ontario, it's in that $350 an acre. Um, so we rent out our land and then we buy a complete TMR back or a PMR partial mixed ration back to our dairy and then we have the robot pellet on top of that so then we have zero field work and we can just really focus in on the dairy and that allows me you know to do the off-farm uh, and help run the vet practice okay so I'm going to ask you a question with your vet hat on not your uh, dairy producer hat on uh, at a from a vet capacity when you look at a herd like how do you look at profitability from that measure from a vet perspective on a herd you really have to break it down and i've gone over a lot of dairies with with you know with my vet hat on you have to look at whether or not so every cow in the dairy is going to have a vet number associated with it let's just say it's 200 dollars a cow that would you know there's some dairies going to be at 100 some dairies are going to be at 400 some of it depends on herd size but a lot you got to know what's in the number and that is what I find when I speak at these little meetings or we have little, you know, study club meetings together and we start looking at numbers, make sure breeding, okay, is not in the veterinary cost. Make sure you break that out, especially on your balance sheets. The more detailed that you enter the numbers, numbers on your balance sheets, you get to exactly look at those numbers and compare them year over year or within those groups. 
on your vet costs is the rumensin boluses so if, or kekstone boluses now are those included in the feed side of things or are they coming through the vet side of things like it's just slightly over $20 for a rumensin bolus so if that's per cow all of a sudden that's you know if it's 100 bucks a cow then that's 20% right off the top um you know are the the producers buying you know calf electrolytes through you are they buying some of the tetracyclines or you know make sure all the products are included under the vet cost versus other areas on the sheets so usually what i look at is make sure most of the products um, that are included are necessary when we go over it and make sure we really focus in on the prevention product like make sure herd does have a good vaccine protocol and make sure they are giving those timely injections at the you know to the right age of animal. Um, and why that's important is because it's $2 for a vaccination, $20 to treat an animal. You look at the any of the pneumonia drugs, whether it be the the, the Resflors or Draxins or, or A180s or, you know, Forcils or they are, when, you, when it gets down to it for the average 500, 600 pound animal, you know, it's $20. So they are the heavy hitters that really add to the vet bills. Yeah, I know it's interesting you mentioned that because it's one thing that I've kind of talked about with clients in the past too is is doing the little management things right or doing the vaccines or having enough space in a fresh pen or a dry cow pen, you know, because the reactive cost versus the proactive costs are, you know, I always kind of think, you know, four or five to one. Um, so if you're going to yeah. spend a dollar to prevent, uh, to react on that, you're going to you say you're going to spend five, but I mean, that's an arbitrary number that I use. Like I haven't really put a lot of uh, thought into, to some of these things like you're talking about with uh, uh, like, like treatment costs and, you know, what's this drug cost if I have to administer, you know, what's it cost me if I have to fix a DA on this cow versus if I had, uh, you know, a little bit more room in the, in the fresh pen, for instance, and things like that. So maybe what are your, some of your thoughts on, you know, if I, if I walk into a herd and we're trying to troubleshoot something, where are some of the first things that you're going to focus on to, that'll affect uh, profitability? Well, the number one and number two areas are also the number one and number two areas for uh, vet costs, drying cows up, calving cows in, and, uh, and calves. They're the number one and number two areas on your vet bill to dry cow up and those calves to get them started. So... <clears throat> When I talk about profitability, the number one thing that goes through my mind is engaging the farmer. You know, what do they perceive as a problem? Is it a problem or are they perceiving that problem right? You know, if a heifer complains that, you know, none of his 12 month old heifers are big enough to breed, as an example, Keith. Yep. You know, why don't we go back to the calf area and find out why, you know, let's start to track some average daily gains. You know, I got, you know, 10 or 15 clients that are looking at average daily gain and usually calling those animals that weaning once they get it and not, you know, just not breeding them or not putting them through the rest of the process. Um, I would say that is a, is, is a really good area to focus in on for calves and not investing anymore in an animal that's going to have a poor return on investment. The second area of profitability is, yeah, those, those fresh cows. And most dairies um, that build new barns, it's a very common theme. Once they're in a new barn, 
and things are going well and they have lots of space, the first thing they say to me, Matthew, you know, we were milking on 150, 200 cows, let's say 200 cows in the old barn. And we were busting at the seams and now they're into a new barn and they're back to 180 cows. So they're milking less cows in that new barn than they were in the old barn. But the reality <laughs> is they gave yep. those cows space. They called the appropriate cows and here they are. So how does that new barn make you money? It allows those guys to actually make the right calling decisions. And then they keep the most profitable cows and they get back to the number that they should be at. Keith, you must see that yourself. Well, I do. I was actually just going to tell you a little bit of a story about a client that uh, that actually just moved into a new robotic facility, and and the cows haven't even looked back. Like we keep uh, we keep pulling back on some, trying to save some money on some feed costs and including more forage, and it just doesn't seem. It just seems like everything we do, the cows just keep going up. So, <laughs> which is a good thing. But when you start to get, you know, when you start to get close to that cap on quota, you know, you're 10 days over, you start to kind of, you get a little bit more nervous and, and you just have to, uh, you have to get a little extra aggressive uh, uh, culling cows, but, but that's okay. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that uh, there's a reason that you go into the new barn and, and one of it is, is a lot of times is cow comfort. So, you know, when we hear producers, oh, my cows went up five liters when they went to into the new barn. Well, you know what? A lot of that, I, I would think, you know, maybe four liters of that would probably be just an improvement in, in the environment that that animal's in. I don't know what yeah. your thoughts would be on that, but. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like a lot of the reasons and don't underestimate culling. When guys go into a new barn and cows go up, you know, one or two liters because of the environment and the facilities and the cow comfort, all the things that you've mentioned, all of a sudden they start calling. Which cows do they call? And or dry up a few weeks early, all the low production cows. So what yeah. does a farmer tell you? That two liters turns into four liters, you know, within a few months. So that's the, uh, that's also, uh, you know, it's a twofold, it's a twofold experience of a new barn. Yeah. And it's not a, it's amazing. Like your, your top end, like your average is only going to be as high as your bottom end is right. Like if you want to have a higher average, if your bottom end keeps kind of creeping up, you're going to eventually just work your way into that. And I know, uh, you've heard him talk and I've heard him talk a lot and I've talked about him on the podcast is Gordy Jones. He says, you can never call your way into a, to a lower average. Like you're just always <laughs> getting rid of your, their lower milk story. He goes, you're always just getting rid of your bottom end and it's just giving more room for those, those highly productive cows to, uh, kind of flourish. So, um, when you look at profitability, like how do you prioritize it? Like, do you look at it as in what's going to give me the fastest payback? What's going to give me the most long-term, uh, the greatest long-term effects? Like how, how does, uh, how do you look at it maybe from a producer and from a vet vet perspective? Well, that's a good question, Keith. So from a producer, I'll use my producer hat right now. How I prioritize profitability is when you sit down with your, you know, your accountant or your, uh, you know, your financial advisors, lenders, bankers um, at the end of the year, I try and look at it through their eyes. Um, they see a lot of clients and they do a lot of lending because at the end of the day, a lot of aggressive dairies are on the verge of, you know, how do I, you know, gain efficiencies or gain profitabilities to buy my next, to buy that next kg of quota. Right now, guys are doing that out of cash flow, but how do I borrow more money 
and you know to do my next project because a lot of the younger generation or a lot of aggressive farmers even right now they're not sitting still they're still you know improving like building feed sheds out back you know to try and gain efficiencies on the feeding side so they have less shrink or you know they're buying the farm even and that's really driven the price of farmland through the roof here um, but they're all still borrowing money. So I try and look at profitability through the eyes of a banker and or my accountant. Um, and I prioritize that really um, on things that I can change and do better. Um, and I would say right now, the hot topic is, is, uh, is raising too many animals. I would say that the foreseeable outlook of the dairy industry, you know, everything that's happened from, from our trade negotiations and, um, you know, just where our market's at right in Canada, you know, we are not going to experience a lot of growth for the next, you know, eight to 10 years. It's going to be that one, 2% a year. So that can usually just be done, be done with better nutrition and a little bit better genetics along the way. So heifer replacements um, and raising the right ones and the use of, you know, beef, on our heifers has become, you know, absolutely the new norm. And it, it's going to go to heights that we, you know, probably, you know, it's, have never seen. I know that I personally have uh, on the vet side of things, I personally have a few clients that are at a 90, 10, you know, one guy's at 95, five right now for the next few months, but even a 90% beef right now, 10% wow. sex, sex semen. That's, that's, um, you know, and why, when you listen to these good farmers, why, when you listen to them, if you just take, I don't know the quick math in my head, if you take the 100 cow dairy and, um, you know, and you are, you know, let's say you need a 30% replacement. So you can have 70% of your calves born black or born beef, you know, and 200 bucks spread right now, it's a little bit more than that. Prices are a little bit higher when, when we're having this meeting today. But on average, between a Holstein bull calf and a beef bull calf, $200. So that's $14,000 for 100 cow dairy. Yeah. Right? Did ever, if everyone didn't follow me, that's $200 times by seven. Seven times two is $14,000 extra revenue for that 100 cow dairy. So it's $14,000 per 100 cows. So when yeah. you go to the banker or your accountant at the end of the year and you look at expense ratio, that can move that 2% for a hundred cow dairy. There's yeah. not very many things that you can do on a dairy to move that 2%. That's a big deal. And if you go higher than that, like I know I'm talking a lot right now, Keith, but at 90%, okay, the reason he's that, all the breedings that are happening right now, that means in three years from now, that's going to be winter milk. So next year, those animals are going to calve or those calves are going to be born two years or 20 months yeah. after that, they're going to calve, they're going to peak 60 days, 50 days after calving. So that's winter milk three years down the road. We don't need more milk in the months of January, February, March, April, you know, and then in the summertime, you know, that particular dairy with the 90, 10, but he's not the only one. I have at least five guys I can think of at the top of my head that are at 90, 10. How many? And then in the summertime, they'll go back to that 25% sex, 30% sex in the summer. That's an interesting point. So in your professional opinion, how many producers are moving that beef breeding around? Like, are they, like, like you said, are they seasonally breeding more beef? And then, you know, the areas where they might need more heifers, you know, like you said, three years down the road, are they, you know, going back to more sexed or more conventional or maybe a combination of both? Yeah. Like, uh, um, 
I think a lot of guys are, are, are heading in that direction. I would even say, I'm thinking right now, like I would even say it's a very much of a trend to even use on the beef side of things, some sex semen key, yeah. you know, sex bulls. Cause I can even make a bigger difference. I could drive you yeah. instead of 200, you're 250, maybe $300 between a Holstein bull calf and a Holstein uh, and, and, uh, and, a, and a cross. But you, no matter what you do on dairies, and it's easier to do on larger dairies, but you have to monitor the data. That's probably the biggest thing that I do on dairies right now. Monitor a decision. Just because you choose to do something doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. If you use sex semen or sex beef semen or even sex Holstein semen, you have to monitor it. See what the if there is a drop in conception, yes or no, um, you know, and weigh the economic decision. And so look at the data, analyze the data, make the appropriate change. Yeah, I think that's one thing that uh, I know I've I've kind of focused on over the last little bit is getting better at at monitoring things that we change and and making sure that we're moving in the right direction. I know it's a it can be a daunting task sometimes and very time consuming when you start flipping through dairy comp or flipping through uh, whatever kind of data collection you're using, whether who knows you maybe maybe even be just you know, paper trail, but, uh, some napkin math there, but, uh, I mean, <laughs> been there, done that. Yeah. If it works on a napkin, it'll work on a spreadsheet. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I know, and, it, and it's one thing as advisors, I guess, for, for you and I is that understanding and translating and putting that, putting a dollar figure to that, like a, like a, like a economic impact almost on what, uh, on what that might be. But it's interesting that you're talking about guys making breeding decisions now for three years down the road when they don't necessarily need the milk. So, and I don't, yeah. Yeah. And I would always say, I always tell guys in the end, like myself, um, you know, we've gone to, you know, probably in that 60% um, beef right now maybe 70, closer to 70, 60, between 60 and 70% right now. There's nothing wrong with raising 10% too many extra heifers. Sometimes when you run things just, you know, always right on the line or right on the wire, there, you know, then you run into a little bit of an issue or you wish you had like, you know, a couple more heifers. I always say it's like buying insurance. We all buy insurance for the major fire or, you know, vehicle insurance or, you know, there's even more, you know, more areas in that that we need insurance for, but there's nothing wrong with having a few too many heifers. Yeah. I know that gives you just a little bit of flexibility in my opinion. Like if you do have a, have an issue that, or a disease outbreak or, you know, anything, you maybe had a year, you had some bad feet or something like that. And, and you didn't do a great job or something happened and that, that heifer might not be viable. It's nice to have that little bit of a buffer one way or another because it's a lot easier to sell an animal than buy one back in like one you're going to get a check for one you're going to cut a check for so i'd much rather be getting a check (laughs) but uh, i mean it might not be the it might not be you know we always talk it costs the x amount of dollars to raise a heifer in reality when you're looking at your cost production on the farm it's probably not going to be as high as somebody like me saying um putting a cash value on everything i mean it's probably pretty close but um you know, even producers getting a couple thousand dollars for a fresh animal that they might not need around there, you know, that definitely helps on the cash flow side of things. 
Yeah, that's a topic that not a lot of people, you have the direct cost of fee, but there's something called marginality. And marginality is a topic that we can discuss another day. But if you have, you know, five empty stalls and a pen, the marginality of raising that, you know, or fill, making or filling an extra or stall with a heifer, you already have the labor to go and feed that group of pens, or feed yeah. that group of heifers, and you already have to bed the rest of the group. So to 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 raise another four or five doesn't cost as much it is as it is to raise the first ten in the pen. Well, it lowers your fixed cost, right? On the on the raising portion of that. Like you got a roof over their head already. So as long as you're not being detrimental to the other animals in that pen, then we should be, you know, you're just gonna lower your fixed cost on them, I think. So Right. That's right. This time of year it's easier to make milk. And I know I I know we wanted to I didn't want to touch on the palmatic acid thing with the buttergate and everything, but I know we've talked about it in the past too, is uh, kind of a hot button issue is, is feeding fat. And I know I've had lots of conversations about it. You've had lots of conversations about it. Um, this time of year, it's, you know, butter fat seems to be a little bit easier. I was looking at some bulk tanks here this week and um, it just seems like fats maybe up a little bit around the countryside. So what are some things that we can do to maybe save uh, some money on feed in your opinion and not compromise, uh, I guess, health or, or future production? Hey, saving money on feeding, that's your area. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you want to you save money on feed? <laughs> then have less have less less mouths to feed. I guess that's where I was going, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, back in the day, I, I you just made me think of something funny. Back in the day, you know, my father, uh, you know, a few few sayings that you always remember as a kid. My father used to say, Matt, if it's a real hot summer, the feed's going to have lots of energy in it, and lots of fat, lots of sugars, and and, and you're not going to need as many cows to fill that quota. If it's a really rainy, wet summer and there's tons of volume out there, you're going to need to milk a lot more cows. So guess what happened last summer, Keith? <laughs> I've always heard that uh, a dry year will scare you to death and a wet year will starve you to death. So <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> but no, I, and I think we are seeing that. Like I know there's some issues with uh, some feed inventory around the countryside. Like people are just, you know, looking at it now and saying, Oh, we're not going to have any extra carry out, you know, going into the, going into the summer this year. So um, I know that's a little bit of an issue with, with drier years too, is you get real high quality stuff, but maybe quantity might be a little bit, a uh, little bit low, but uh, yeah. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you should touch on a point that's close to my close to my heart. Getting these dairies to build up feed storage. Um, you've done a really good job on some dairies that you've worked with, Keith, and that we work together on. And, um, you know, I always like it when we can approach things from a team aspect. But getting those guys to drop the 75000 for another bunker and then the extra feed inventory to originally fill that extra bunker. Um, you know, just you talk about feed costs. And that's the number one thing. You want to drop your feed costs. Everybody out there, you know, you have to spend the capital investment and you have to some year either grow more corn silage or whatever Keith's going to talk about here. But when that feed sits for three, six months and you can get, you know, six, seven, eight percent more value out of the same feed, there isn't a dairyman. And I have a lot that have gotten at least three months ahead fermented. 
there's not one of those dairies that have a regret once they get there. Maybe you want to touch on that, Keith. Yeah, and I know it's a, I've had that conversation oh, at least three times already this week about that because I, I have a producer right now and they're building, they're going to start building in the spring and build a robot barn and they're asking about feeding strategies and things like that. And and they asked me about what my opinions were on egg bags. And um, like at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, egg bags are a good way to bridge the gap on something. Um, yep. If you have the proper gravel pad to put it and things like that. And then we kind of got talking about strategy with corn silage and, you know, how we would do it. But it's hard to convince producers when they're looking at, you know, they're growing IP beans, getting paid $20 a bushel or $7 corn. Like it's really hard to, <laughs> it's really hard to, to make a long-term decision like that when the short term looks so rosy. Um, but I, I think what you touched on is incredibly important. Like sometimes just having that extra bunk so you have a little bit more uh, fermented forage on hand is, is key. Um, I was at a herd this morning. That is one thing we were talking about because I know they're tight already. So we were kind of getting a strategy together on what we're going to do for the summer to feed some heifers. So, you know, then it came down to what are we, or what are some alternative crops are we going to plant? You know, they've already planted, have planned on planting some oats and peas in the spring and they had some triticale that they planted last fall. So there's going to be some spring feed there and, you know, just try and get inventories built up. And I know it's, Every herd that I've seen that has ample amounts of feed inventory around has really gone to that next level on production. And 100%. I don't have, it's, it's an antiquated thought. Like I don't necessarily have any hard numbers to that to correlate it, but I mean, it's there. Like we see it, I've seen it on lots of dairies. You've seen it on lots of dairies and lots of dairies that we work with uh, together. Um, having that extra little bit of feed around is a good thing. I had a older, uh, gentleman tell me one time it's a lot easier to have it to look at it than it is to find it so <laughs> <laughs> well we need we just need to be like the states you know basically the, the, the states what they do down there is they just build these mountains of feed and that's their glorified bank account so when times yeah. get tough they just dig into those piles a little bit more and when well, times are real times are real good they use more off-farm commodities and I mean, you raise an interesting point because I think the bank looks at it the same way, like whether it be in feed inventory in corn silage or grain in a bin, they're still looking at it at the same, at the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe you have a trick. I was asked this morning on a big dairy, you know, the amount, like the, the one disadvantage about those big bunkers or big piles is you got to keep that face good and clean so that you don't feed a flock of birds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, uh, got any <laughs> tips, Keith? Uh, I have a few, but none of them seem to work very good. They, they fly from the barn to the bunk, from the bunk to the barn or yeah. from the neighbor's pile back to their pile. And, and, uh, do you have any great hints on how to kill massive amounts of birds and stop feeding them? That, that would gain most guys one or 2% on their expense ratios. Well, it's amazing on how much those little buggers eat. I just did a presentation. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know it was uh, it was quite a bit. And they don't eat the they don't eat the cheap stuff. They eat the starch. <laughs> they eat the corn, right? Like, but uh, one comment I do have is make sure you use steel shot. Uh, you don't want to give any lead poisoning to cows if you're going to be shooting toward <laughs> around the bunkers. But uh, um, yeah. I've seen screamers work. They work limited. Um, yeah, they work for a while. The best. 
I got a client that uh, every year they try to uh, get a hawk in the barn. Just like they'll see one fly in, they'll close the doors real quick so he can't get out. <laughs> that keeps the, the birds out great. of the barn. <laughs> yeah, that keeps the yeah. birds out of the barn. But uh, yeah, I, I've got no, I've got no, uh, no real, a, real good, good solution for that one. I had a. Um, I should tell you a story about birds. I always sometimes tell this to my clients. So back in New Brunswick, my father, he was pretty ingenious in the old barn. So we built a new barn there and it's so high. But in the old barn, they had those open rafters or whatever. And birds would just perch on those open rafters like crazy. So if you can picture those old barn, old barns, a little bit lower. And uh, in the very end of the barn, okay, he took one sheet of tin off the very top of the barn. So when all the doors were closed, these birds would just fly out that open section of tin. So he put a cage and a little slide that he would slide there. So he on one side of the barn, he yep. put a big sort of cage, I, I don't know, 10 by 10 cage that he just set right over top of the hole. So he would, all these birds would come in, they would fly out, fly out, fly out. You know, once a month he would go and just flip the little slide and then all these birds would go into the cage. Yeah. So every time I would come home from college, you know, that was when we were, I was back and I was still doing my education on the East Coast. Dad was like, Dad would be, Matt, let's go kill some birds. We would flip that little slide, scare all the birds. And I would, you know, once a month, we'd get anywhere from, you know, one time it was 1,500 in that little, uh, and we just go in there and break their necks and and throw them over the side. But uh, in the end, I think he got over 75,000. Wow. That's all almost better. Them. That's almost better than the Pigeon King. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey. We did it with the pigeons too. Make sure no one, uh, make sure, yeah, these are only birds that are, you know, perching in our dairies that we're doing this to. Yeah. And I mean, I was just actually just looking this up and they will eat 50% of their body weight each day. So wow. uh, like 20,000 starlings, which, uh, which is the bird, which is a know. little, little black bird that you usually see on the bunks will eat, uh, uh, 454, uh, kilograms of grain per day and that's from an actual study from north dakota state so like it, it's research like it, it is a big problem in the industry and, and not to mention like the feed that they wreck like they're crapping in it all the time i know you've seen it too probably in the in the winter time you go into a barn and you know yeah. the cows manure is inconsistent and you know i just wonder if how much bird poo they're eating and and if that's throwing their guts off a little bit or not but yeah but uh so I guess I got one kind of last thought or question for you, Matt, but where do you see the future of the dairy industry going as it kind of pertains to profitability? Like, are we going to look at like how we use money more efficiently? Or are we going to just kind of focus on higher income, more feed costs? Is it lower cost production? Like, like from a producer and, and advisor standpoint, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, predicting the future is a hard thing. <laughs> um, I won't hold you to it. <laughs> no, that, that's right. I, I think no matter what, um, you know, even in the 16 years that I've, or 15 years that I've been a veterinarian here, I'm amazed. Like these two-year-olds at 50 liters, um, more and more common, I would say. Um, I, I think it's just phenomenal the volume of milk that we can get out of these animals. And especially on some of these robot farms when they're milked four times a day, or even on these three times a day parlor dairies, like, you know, 60 liters there, there's multiple two-year-olds now at 60 liters. So where's yeah. the end? I know when I, you know, 15 years ago, I was thinking 30 liters was, uh, was a great number. 
So I truly don't believe that there is really an end. I think that we're going to continue to climb higher. Um, you know, I think that we're going to, I think that we're going to get, continue to get better and better health traits. That is one area that uh, I think there is a lot more growth from, you know, these new traits that are on the, the bulletproofs now, metabolic disease, hoof health. Um, so maybe they'll find, uh, you know, a genetic marker for digital dermatitis resistance or something along those lines in the future, you know, but, and there's a lot of money to be made there. But I think, I think that in the future, we're going to be basically able to pick sex semen, yes or no. And we're going to get it down to the point that, you know, this cow, I want a heifer calf out of, um, boom, let's get one out of her and everything else I want a bull calf out of. So, you know, so it's going to be very much, very much choosing which females that you want to select. And then above and beyond that, we're going to add the health traits into it. So, so, you know, longevity, you know, mastitis, we're going to really be able to select a dairy cow genetically that meets all of our needs. Um, and then we're going to continue even on, even on your front, Keith, I think that nutritionally, there's still a lot more, um, you know, a lot more ground that can be gained, um, whether it's, you know, room and health. Um, they're working on a lot of things right now, you know, leaky room, like room and gut, you know, where we're going with uh, higher forage diets, um, you know, even on these robot herds, you know, selecting groups of cows, fresh cows that are, you know, feeding those fresh cows to lose less body condition. Um, and that's an area that I strongly feel when you want to, you know, flush large volumes of milk through these cows, these fresh cows that lose a lot of weight, they are, and that is an issue, you know, that's an issue for twinning, a twinning rate in the dairy industry, which is, you know, more and more of a hot topic. And what do we do with those cows with twins to, um, you know, hoof health disease when we flush that much and, and require those high, high dry matter intakes in those fresh cows. So I think there's going to be feeding strategies that are going to, that are going to, you know, you know, play a role in that. So I started uh, in the feed industry about the same time you moved in on, into uh, Ontario in 2006. And, you know, back then I thought, you know, getting a kilo and a half of fat per cow was like, it can't be done. No way. There's no way you can do it. Now it's like, you're starting to hear more about two kilos of fat per cow on herd oh, level, yeah. on herd level, uh, a kilo and a half like if you're not close to a kilo and a half on a robot or a three X herd, like we've got two X herds that are, are doing a kilo and a half to a kilo six, kilo seven, even we're hearing out there. Like it just keeps amazes me on how fast the industry is adapting and, and getting better at it. And I mean, it's, I think it's a lot of our problems now with uh, having too much heifer inventory. We're just doing too good of a job keeping heifer calves alive <laughs> like <laughs> that's like, right you know 10 years ago you know i think people really started to put a focus on on uh, having heifers like raising their own heifers and not buying them in and and you know 10 years later look at what we've got like everybody it seems like everybody in ontario is busting at the seams um with yeah. in heifer inventory so you you know you want farmers to do a better job keith just challenge them. Farmers, yeah. you know, just challenge them to improve their uh, bottom line. You want, you know, right right now, the reason, like, our call rate is at an all-time high is because we have so many heifers. And yeah. guys get used to the high calling rates or herd turnover rates. 
that I should use herd turnover just so everybody yeah. knows herd turnover is the cows that are that died on the dairy plus the cows that are sold or called. So now it's common to have 40, 45% herd turnover just because we can. If we're forced to do a better job and keep some of those older cows around versus run a 45 or 50% two-year-old, then we yeah. can easily achieve, and there are farmers already out there, over two kgs of butterfat per head per day. Yeah, And that's without those herds that I'm thinking of, without the addition of high amounts of, of palmitic fat. Yeah, I know. Like, I don't think we're even close to the genetic potential of these cows. Like, I think we do more limiting them than anybody, anything, like whether it be with comfort or nutrition or like, it's funny. Like I was at a herd last or early this week and I always used to look at cows, like the percentage of the herd greater than 45 kilos. And he showed me the list of cows. He goes, yeah, we used to have more cows over 65, 70 kilos than we are having right now. So like, is there something that we're doing that we could kind of express that? And it's just like, wow, like who would have thought this 10, 15 years ago? So, yeah. Well, I think that and, and from the genetic side of things too, you know, I know like I've heard the rumblings like, I don't think you really want to go down the roads of gene insertion and deletion and, you know, genetically modifying a cow, but there is, you know, I know that the research scientists in those areas can, can, could also do a lot. You know, it's pretty easy. If you don't want an animal with horns, just pull that gene out. All of a sudden, no horns. Yeah. But, but I think, uh, I think we're already genetically modifying them just by the traits that we're selecting for. We are. We're doing yeah. it the long way where they're looking, yeah, okay, well, right. we can just go in and here and snip this gene and be there a lot quicker. Yeah. And I agree with the long way. I think that that's yeah. more, uh, you know, I yeah. think our, you know, I think that that's better for the industry to do it that way. And it, yeah. Well, Matt, I, uh, I appreciate your time uh, here today. I know it's getting close to 3.30. I imagine you got some kids you got to get off the school bus here before long. So I really appreciate it. Was there any final thoughts that you had that you wanted to kind of touch on that we hadn't covered yet? Um, I would say the only thing we didn't spend a lot of time talking about was on the repro side of things, the vet and me. Yeah. You know, that's what I deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could keep going if you want. I no, know, uh, no. Yeah. I should say like, don't underestimate, um, you know, don't underestimate the value in having a good team of people around you. Um, you know, your nutritionist, the veterinarian, any other advisors that are part of the team, um, listening as a group, um, you know, everyone steering the boat in the same direction. That's probably, you know, one of the most important things and don't change things drastically. Even when we're in environments like this, you should almost do the opposite tighten things up, call a little bit heavier, make sure and on the repro side of things, I've moved to a lot of herds, you know, three breedings done or 150 days in milk. If they're open call Keith, yeah. I would like when I first started, it was 200 days in milk and open call. Now yeah. we're on 150 days yeah. in milk call. So you just need to be tighter, have a tighter window all the way around. That is the, uh, and then everything else will just fall into place. That's a good way to end it. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate uh, your time today and uh, stay safe out in these uh, uncertain times. You too, Keith. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to the DFD podcast. If you would like to have further discussions about the topics we talked about on this show, please contact me. 
Keith Schweitzer. I have left my contact information in the show notes. I would also like to say thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Nogueira. For future updates on topics and guests, please follow me on Twitter, at Keith Schweitzer.